0: Americans United is fighting back. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. Welcome to Getting Curious, or maybe welcome back. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a real yet expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. Now, ever since Dr. Giles taught us all about orcas a few weeks ago, my socials have been filled with ocean content. But recently, my TikTok especially, that FYP, has been showing me the most incredible videos about like deep sea fish, and this one in particular that grabbed me by the jugular, honey. Like I was just like, what is happening here? It was this angler fish, which are like those fish from um, Finding Nemo with like the little dangly light in front of their, like, that's like attached to their head. And it's like that little like lure. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? So, that video made me realize that there are so many things going on in the deep ocean that I just don't know about. So, I need to learn about anglerfish. I need to learn about the deep sea ocean. So, enter our guest, Dr. Mackenzie Gerringer, who is an assistant professor of biology at SUNY Genesio. She studies the physiology and ecology of deep sea animals, including the planet's deepest living fishes. Come out, fishies. Mackenzie, how are you? You having a good day?
1: I'm well. Thank you so much for this opportunity to chat.
0: Um. Thank you for coming on here and teaching us all of the things about the deep sea fish. You know, first and foremost, let's get into these anglerfish. What in the fuck is going on with angler fish mating?
1: They're pretty amazing, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want someone to... I would rather... I mean, gird our loins because this is going to be intense. I'd rather he just come inside me. Like, I don't really want him to, like, bite my stomach and fuse into one. Like, I like my space. I want to eat my own stuff. Like... I don't really want my husband biting my fucking stomach. I'd rather he just mount me and leave. But biology is mysterious. So... So that's real. Like that TikTok video was real.
1: Yeah. And so it's this amazing adaptation to survive in the deep ocean. The deep oceans are huge. They actually make up 70% of the places that things can live on our planet. So it's this giant habitat. And these anglerfish are living out in the open water where you don't know when you're going to meet somebody of the same species, right? And so this incredible adaptation has evolved where the egg producers of the species are the large ones and they look more like, fish. And then the sperm producers are really small, about 10 times smaller sometimes than the egg producers. And the sperm producers will come up and just spend their whole lives, in some cases, looking for that egg producer. They have really big nostrils to be able to smell her out in the water. And then they'll uh, find that egg producer and actually fuse, like you're saying, fuse the whole circulatory system and become this almost appendage. So in, in my opinion, it's kind of a beautiful bonding, right? That they're able to have this adaptation that works to let that species survive.
0: Um. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. So, there. So and the deep ocean is like dark all the time, right? Like light doesn't get down there?
1: Past about a thousand meters, so about 3,000 feet, totally dark. But then there are animals like these anglerfish that are making their own light. So that's one of the, I think, hallmarks of the group is they have this ability to do bioluminescence where they can produce their own light in this dark environment.
0: Do uh, boy and girl anglerfish
1: have that dangly light thing? just the egg producers. So the most of the pictures that you're seeing and that you're probably familiar with are the egg producers of the species. And there's actually a huge diversity within the group. There are more than 170 different species of anglerfish. And we call these groups the ceratioids is the name of this uh, group of deep sea anglerfishes. And there's a lot of diversity. And it's actually hard sometimes for scientists to pair which one is the egg producer and which is the sperm producer of the same species because they look so different. And so we need things like genetic sequencing to be able to tell which one is the same um, individual of the same species.
0: Can anglerfish like hybridize with, with different species of
1: anglerfish? Oh, not that I know of. So, in biology, we consider a species to be uh, the egg producer and the sperm producer can mate, and then that offspring can also have other offspring. So, we use that as the definition for a species. It's called the biological species concept.
0: Shit. Okay. Also, I'm loving this like gender inclusive language of like egg producer and sperm producer. That's fucking amazing. I'm like so obsessed. Um, okay. So, how long how long is like an anglerfish's lifespan?
1: This is a great question, and maybe some of your listeners can help us figure it out someday because we actually don't really know. Do you know how we tell how old fishes are? Have you heard any how? of this story? Okay. No. So yeah, you know how um, if you see a tree, it'll have these growth rings, and it'll grow a lot during the spring in that wet season, and then it won't grow in the winter, so you end up with this annual banding. And in fishes, it turns out they have a bone in the inner ear that's called an otolith, which is Greek for ear stone. And if you cut into that bone, you can actually see banding kind of like tree rings, where it has this growth period and then a slower period. So you see what looks like tree rings in this bone in the inner ear. And so that's how we tell how old different um, fishes are for a lot of species. But for angler fishes, no one really knows yet. There's one study that looked at a couple of species and found a few bands. They said maybe 10 years. Um, But we also need to know if those Bands are happening every year. Because for an anglerfish, it could be that they grow a lot when they meet a meal, or it could be that there's some sort of seasonal connection. So it's a really open field and we'll encourage folks to get curious and to find out um, what's happening with those lifespans.
0: Would you ever be able to like geotag an anglerfish to like see if it's like dead or alive or something?
1: That would be a fun idea for a study to take some tags and track where these fishes are going. It's done in a lot of shallower living species, but there's been so few opportunities to even see anglerfish alive in their natural habitat. So most of what we know about these groups is from trawl samples. And if you take a big net and drag and catch anything that's there, a lot of that gets damaged. And so it's hard to see Uh, what they're doing, and you also don't see any interactions that these animals have with each other or what they're doing in the environment. So there's been a lot of progress trying to film them, but that's something that we'll have to do in the future too.
0: So you said 170 species of anglerfish, right?
1: Yeah, these deep sea groups, yes. Oh, is there shallow anglerfish? Yeah, so there are some shallow ones too. Oh, fuck! And the groups are all... They are united by this structure. So this lure, I like to think of it as a fish that fishes. So it has that little lure. And I think it has a really beautiful name. It's called the Elysium, which comes from the Latin for to seduce, right? It kind of has that feel to it. Yeah. And so for these deep sea angler fishes, that Elysium, that lure, is a little house for bioluminescent bacteria. So it's not actually the fish that's making the light. It's bacteria that are living in that perfect little environment. And they make the little light for the anglerfish that attracts prey.
0: Are they born with that bacteria in there? Does the bacteria have to get in there?
1: This is such a great question. And there was a really exciting paper that came out a couple of years ago where they tried to figure this out. So are these bacteria coming from the environment? Are they passing them on from anglerfish to anglerfish? And surprisingly, what the team found is that they think that they're actually coming from the environment and that the fish is able to build this perfect habitat for those microbes to live. But what they found is there's actually only one or two different types of these bacteria, even in all the anglerfishes. So there's so many different types of the fish, but the bacteria are really similar. And they actually found some of the bacteria in the water too. So they think that they're coming from the water and then they're kind of Cultured in the Selysium in the lure. Ah, what
0: about the colors of um, like anglerfish? Like, do, is there like a lot of variety of color between the 170 species, or do we not know?
1: Most of them are very dark. So in that environment that they're living in, sometimes they are in a little bit of sunlight. And so they have to be able to hide. And in a coral reef environment or something like that, you can go hide under a rock. But out in the open ocean that we call the pelagic, there's nowhere for them to hide. So there's all sorts of adaptations to be able to not get eaten in this environment. And so we see a lot of organisms that are totally clear. So some of the larvae of fish, for example, you can see all the way through them, but a lot of these adult angler fishes are really dark colors, um, like black, but then also some of these deep sea fishes are red. And that feels a little bit counterintuitive because in uh, our eyes under bright light, red is a really bright color, but under a blue light that's really dim, red can actually look black so we see a lot of these deep sea fishes being this kind of dark red or black color to hide in that environment
0: do all of them have those crazy teeth
1: they do have big teeth right and and jaws that are taking up in some cases about of the length of the body. So it's another adaptation to living in this food poor environment where you have to be able to eat your next meal, even if it's a big one compared to your body size. So when I talk with kids, I like to um, say it's kind of like being able to just open your mouth and swallow a whole large pizza in one gulp. And they have these expandable stomachs uh, to help them digest that prey. And so they'll be able to feed on some pretty incredible meals.
0: Are the um sperm producers and the egg producers uh do they have like that same jaw like are they basically the same structure but just smaller and bigger minus the lure or the the elysium
1: really different? So the Oh they're really uh, different. The egg producer is the one that we picture with you know, big teeth, the Elysium. Uh, they have kind of small, round bodies. They're not really built to be long-distance swimmers. They're sit-and-wait predators, so they're fishing. Oh, and, Yeah. And then the sperm producers uh, look a little bit more like tadpoles. So they're very, very reduced. And over evolutionary time, for some species, they've lost the ability to do basically anything except find the egg producer.
0: Um. So... Uh, what's the range of the egg producers? Like, is it giving like fist to like like watermelon-sized or like... I
1: think people think they're really big. When I ask people who've seen Finding Nemo, you know, how big is an anglerfish? They'll think huge, six feet long. But most of them are really small. The average is about six inches long for those egg producers. So quite small. Some of them are even smaller. So I think they're really cute. Yes, they have these big teeth. But they're tiny, right? Uh, Yeah.
0: But not the size of your fist. Like your fist would even be too big, right?
1: There are some species that are about that big. And there are some that get a little bit longer. So on the order of 16 inches, but most of them are quite small. And then for the sperm producers, they can be teeny tiny. So like six to 10 millimeters, about a quarter of an inch long. And that is the adult that's coming and trying to find that egg producer.
0: Is that like the same size as plankton or is plankton like microscopic?
1: Plankton is actually defined by whether or not they can swim against a current. So a lot of plankton is really small, but you can actually be, I think it's a fun word, megaplankton which are large, you can be several feet long, like some of these gelatinous organisms, and they're just not strong enough to swim against the current, so that's what makes them plankton.
0: Oh my god, that's interesting! Don't you just love when someone looks at you and says, what were you up to last night? Well, no matter how late you were up the night before, Lumify redness reliever eye drops can help your eyes look more refreshed and awake. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute to help your eyes look brighter and whiter for up to eight hours. No wonder it has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. You won't believe your eyes. You know you can trust them, though, because they're made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb, and they're backed by six clinical studies. Eye doctors trust them, too. They're the number one recommended redness reliever eye drop. The one and only Lumify is an amazing drop that will have people saying something's different about you in the best way possible. So check out LumifyEyes.com to learn more. Did you know that while over 60% of Americans dream of starting their own business, less than 20% of them ever take their first step? The reason? Building a business is tough. Having built a business or two myself, I know just how difficult the whole process is. But Taylor Brands is simplifying the business journey. From launching and managing to growing your business, Taylor Brands isn't just another tool. It's your online business partner from launch to success. With Taylor Brands, building your dream business becomes an effortless experience. Yes! From LLC information to bookkeeping, invoicing to acquiring licenses and permits, and even setting up your bank account, Taylor Brands handles it all seamlessly. And our listeners will receive 35% off Taylor Brands LLC information plans using our link taylorbrands.com slash jvn that's t-a-i-l-o-r-b-r-a-n-d-s dot com slash jvn so start your business journey today with taylor brands okay now let's get on to the freaky deaky sperm producer hanging out egg producer casually swims by um sperm producer is like Hey, Aggie, like, let's fucking do this. Like, what's the act? What's this? What's the act of their reproduction? Like, what happens? I need a chronological blow by blow.
1: I don't know how much we know about the actual. Act. So it's this binding. So you could think of it like a biting. I think that that would be a fair description, right? That the sperm producer is coming up and binding, and then that actual fusing is a huge physiological process that takes time before he's sharing the sperm. So Question. they are, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, is it binding or biting? Like, how are we? Is are they? Do they really do, do the boy or do the sperm producers do it with their teeth?
1: It is with the mouth. Mouth. Um, yes. They don't have the same type of teeth like the egg producers have and it's a instead uh, some of the sperm producers are actually not even able to eat on their own they need to find that egg producer so they're not really having you know chewing teeth
0: it's a gummy it's like a gummy it's like a gummy mouth
1: (laughs) yeah so i think i like that word of binding um and then there's a recent study that shows how intense some of this process is because if we try and put you know a foreign organ into a body the immune system can reject it and so researchers were really interested in how does the anglerfish immune system allow this to even happen, right? And it turns out they have all these really incredible adaptations to the immune system to be able to let that fusing happen. So I think thinking about the sperm producer as an appendage is useful. Another fun fact is that there can be more than one. So it's not always one sperm producer binding. It can be as many as eight on one egg producer. Okay, wait. We'll let that sink in. (laughs) Yep.
0: So they... So they do the binding and yep. they're not infusing the sperm, right? So, so as much, tell us as much as you know about the chronological blow-by-blow blow or what science knows about it. Like, how does it all work? How long does yeah. it fucking take? I, need, I just I, need to know.
1: I know. There's so many questions. I don't know how long the process takes. I don't know if we know that yet. So uh, we're seeing there's so many open questions here, right? So there's room in deep sea biology for you. If you're interested in these questions, come join us and help us figure it out because we need answers, right? Uh, so let's see. We have this binding that happens and then the circulatory system will fuse then the sperm producer is essentially, What does that mean? Yeah. So blood vessels connecting so that that structure it would almost it's almost like grafting of an arm or something onto you except it's a bag of sperm in this case.
0: Is it always on the bottom of the angler fish no, egg producer? No, it
1: can be also on the sides. Uh, especially if there's multiple.
0: So it wouldn't be on their eyeballs. Like the sperm producer would be like, oh, let me not fuse on your eyeball. Like, let me let you, Not yeah. that I know
1: of. I don't know of any cases of that. But then they'll lay uh, the eggs. So the egg producer will lay this kind of gelatinous mass of eggs that is then fertilized. And then in some species, that egg mass can actually be buoyant and float up higher towards the surface. And then the eggs will start to develop into little larvae. And then the larvae swim down, and for some species, we think that process can take a couple of years for the larvae to actually develop into adults. So it's this pretty amazing life cycle. It's very dangerous to be. I able don't get to- it. Yeah. Wait, wait. Okay. So
0: they're so they fuse. Yeah. The egg producer, where does her egg sac or where does their egg sac go? It floats out of their body?
1: Yes. So then why yes. do they have to fuse? Species so that they have each other ready because if you just spit out your eggs and they don't get fertilized.
0: So how does his sperm or how does the sperm get to the egg if the egg goes away? Oh, does it happen in the egg producer and then they release them?
1: My understanding is that it's external right next to Where where the egg sac comes out, so it's happening outside the body, as far as I know, in some of these species. Yeah,
0: but then the egg sac gets uh, omitted through the anglerfish. There's like it's laid through like an anglerfish reproductive. Yeah, track. Yep. Um, Track. Yes, and then and then the and then since the sperm producers already fused on, or maybe there's even like eight, then it's like, oh shit, because we're one now. So like, I, I I smell some eggs coming out. And so then the the sperm producer produces sperm and omits it through its fused track. And then the spermy just like swims out and gets all up with the eggs. And, and then they float and then they swim back down and they're like little anglerfish tadpoles. Like, sperm producers and egg producers, and that's, like, how a brood is made or something?
1: Yeah, so I think you're getting it right. I don't know how true the tract being external is for all different species. I would have to try and look into that.
0: Oh, my God, Mackenzie, can I tell you that my whole life, I thought that, like, um like human eggs were like, I always pictured them as like the size of your thumbnail or something from like what you like just from like books in school, you know, like I feel like it's giving like, it's giving like a mint or something. (laughs) Like I was so shocked when I found out that they were like way fucking littler than that.
1: That scale is really hard. We should have in our books and things, we should have some sort of diagram that helps relate it. Because I think that's very common is we think that things, especially that we can't see or don't always come into contact with, are totally different sizes than they are. But then this little ass
0: fish has an egg that's that size.
1: Yeah, so it has a really big egg. And so what we want to know is, are they doing something interesting with their reproductive strategy? And snailfish is in some or some of the other species of snailfishes have this crazy reproductive strategy that's really cool. They actually are reproductive parasites. So we said, maybe that's not the right word for the anglerfish, but for these snailfishes, it is because there are some deepwater snailfishes that actually lay their eggs in the gills of species like king crabs. And then they have a disc on the belly and they'll attach themselves to the crab and ride it around while the eggs develop. So it's this incredible strategy that they use to get their eggs in this nice protected habitat to be able to grow. So that's happening in other...
0: But do they have to fertilize the eggs?
1: Or they're internally fertilized. I don't know if we know that yet. I don't think that we've seen that. Because maybe
0: sure. too, could some snailfish do that thing that those one fish do? Or they like turn into boys and girls or whatever like they they yeah
1: so um hermaphroditism uh both simultaneous and what we call sequential so switching back and forth is super common in fishes and in deep sea fishes some of them are simultaneously hermaphroditic so they're producing both eggs and sperm at the same time and that's super helpful because you don't know if you're going to meet another individual of the sex you need to mate with right so you can meet any and any other individual and mate with them. So other oh. deep sea fishes do that. Uh, not the snail fishes, as far as I know, but it's something worth exploring is are they able to switch back and forth? Because that's common in a lot of other fishes.
0: But not all of snailfish reprodu- parasitically reproduce, just like some do.
1: Just some. Yeah, sometimes they're laying their eggs in algae or in rocks. And we don't know about the hadal ones. It's an open question we want to What's find hadle? out. What's hadal Oh yeah, great. Okay. So the Hadal zone is the deepest part of the ocean. So it's 6,000 to 11,000 meters, about 20,000 to 36,000 feet. And it's named after the Greek underworld. So like Hades. And it takes that name as the bottom part of the ocean. So these deep sea trenches.
0: So does, is parasitic reproduction like, or I guess there's like a lot of different parasitic reproduction, but like what it can mean is like... uh Or like, what what is the definition of parasitic reproduction, actually?
1: Yeah. So when we think about interactions between species, we often like to think about who's benefiting and who has a cost to that interaction. So many, many interactions in ecology are positive, where multiple organisms are benefiting from uh, what they're bringing to their relationship. So they're symbiotic. But in some interactions there's a host or one individual that's losing out. So in this case, the crab probably has its breathing disrupted a little bit by those eggs in the gill, and the snailfish is benefiting. So one is benefiting and the other is not. And so that's what we think of with parasitic strategies.
0: Um, And then does does the snailfish kill the crabs when they hatch, or does the crab survive that?
1: The crab survives as far as we know, and actually good parasites don't kill their hosts because you want to be able to use that host again. So. We would think of a host that kills its parasite as being or a parasite that kills its host as being a bad parasite actually.
0: Um okay so like what other fish are Okay so okay so so snailfish are definitely all up on your they're probably your Michelle Kwan gold medalist five time world champion Favorite, because yes. they're like you're, yeah like so <laughs> but what other like really interesting like kooky things would we see down in the deep ocean?
1: Yeah, there's all sorts of amazing stuff and there's a huge diversity. One that comes to mind are sea cucumbers. So you may have seen sea cucumbers in tide pools or in aquaria and they kind of look like a a cucumber in some ways, right? Or they're brown. Um, they can be kind of lumpy. But in the deep sea, they have this incredible diversity where they can be, uh, in some cases, like four feet long and they have a big sail and a bright yellow color or there are these beautiful purple ones that are kind of dancing and able to swim. And so uh, another favorite are called sea pigs. So they're a type of sea cucumber that are really common in the abyssal plain and they're small and pink and they look a little bit, like a pig. So you can check that out. So there's a huge diversity of organisms in these habitats, and I think they're really beautiful. So if, Uh, People are interested also in seeing more deep sea video or getting involved in deep sea exploration. There are even programs that go take remotely operated vehicles and explore, and you can watch along with them. So if you go to programs like NOAA's Ocean Exploration Program, you can actually become a deep sea explorer and listen to scientists narrate the video and watch these explorations live. I see your face. Have you found some fantastic? (laughs)
0: Images. I think I see a deep sea cucumber's, like, colon and intestines and, like, shit shit track. Mm -hmm.
1: You can't see through some of them. Yeah, and they're feeding on the sediment uh, and eating that organic material in the sediment. Is there any
0: other, like, really cool, like, bioluminescent, like, species that, like, because I feel like you see about, like, glowing shit, but that might not be a good strategy because they're going to get, like, they're, like, a bright orb of getting eaten.
1: It's a danger, right? But for a lot of species, they're able to do it. And the latest estimates I've seen is that something like 70% of deep sea organisms that we know of are able to bioluminesce. So it's actually very common. Um, but like we mentioned earlier, it's hard to study because you can have the lights on and you can see what's there, or you can have the lights off and you can see the light. And so for these ultra deep habitats, like in the Hadal zone, no bioluminescence has yet been found from what I know of, but they're has been bioluminescence shown down to depths like 4,000 meters, so about 12,000 feet. And so it's probably there. We'll just have to um, take a dive to turn the lights off and try and see it.
0: They always say trust your gut. But one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows. And that was Fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. If you follow me on socials or listen to Getting Curious and Pretty Curious, then you'll know I've been on a real makeup journey over the last few years. I've especially been enjoying a more colorful eyeshadow moment, and I've been loving incorporating Thrive Cosmetics' full line of makeup into my routine. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. One thing that's really major about Thrive is how much they're prioritizing giving back. It feels good to know that when I support Thrive, Thrive turns around and supports the communities around them too. I also love that their high-performance formulas are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free and have zero parabens, sulfates, and phthalates. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash curious. That's thrivecosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash curious for 10% off your first order. Could you, for purposes of time, what is like, what from 1 foot deep to 36000 feet how many zones are there like how many cute titles are there is there like 50 or is there like 3 like 5 Oh, give it to us. Yeah. Do you know okay. off the top of your head?
1: Yes. So we think of the surface as the epipelagic. And so epi, like epidermis, your skin. Then we have the mesopelagic, which is that twilight zone where there's a little bit of light, but not enough light for photosynthesis. It's getting darker. And then after that, we have the bathypelagic, which is called the deep pelagic. But it turns out there's two deeper zones below that, which are the abyss, which is actually a formal word, not just, uh, you know, this nebulous abyss environment, and then the Hadel zone past that. So there are set zones. And I'm a big fan of the history of marine science, too. And it turns out they actually had a meeting to decide where these zones would be. And people still discuss what those boundaries should be, because there aren't really walls between those boundaries in the ocean. They're just for us to talk about those different habitats. You
0: mentioned earlier that there is like like something about like the habitats like could there be a place in like the Mar- mariana how do you say that word again Mar- mariana trench could there be like so like if you're like how wide is the mariana trench again is it like a mile wide or is it like way skinnier than that
1: uh 5 to 6 kilometers so uh, like
0: it's pretty wide
1: 2 plus miles and we picture we picture like a really narrow uh divot But it's really more like an underwater mountain that's upside down. So if you instead picture this kind of complex habitat where some of it will be really steep, but then there'll be these flat slopes. And it's very different, the things that live at the uh, top of the trench versus what's living at the very bottom. We see different communities throughout that habitat.
0: Um, And then if you were on a really steep wall of the Mariana Trench, could you ever like Float past like an underwater cave that has like a dry pocket in it. Like where, like, could there like be like a dry pocket in the deep sea?
1: Not in these pressures. So that wa- that air right would collapse under high pressure. Oh. Um, so there may be caves and divots and things, but not filled with air in these habitats.
0: So cause when you said habitats earlier, I was like, ooh, could there be like fucking dry pockets down there? Like it's giving like, you know, car that went into a lake and there's like that little like air pocket, but mm-hmm. there's no air pockets that deep. Not
1: down there, no. Um, what
0: else is fucking weird and interesting about like the deep sea?
1: Oh my goodness. It's all, it's all amazing, right? It's these these incredibly diverse habitats. And one thing that we think of is we use this kind of alien language, right, to talk about the deep oceans. And often they're out of sight and out of mind, right? We might think, oh, we don't have anything to do with those habitats, but we're actually impacting these habitats already by our activities. So it's important that we start talking about and thinking about the deep ocean as being connected with the rest of the ocean environment because we see things like trash ending Fuck. up in deep sea habitats. Yeah, it's it's hard to see. Um, and we're seeing impacts of climate change as well. And so in some cases, we're seeing impacted communities that we're just now discovering what's there that we haven't ever seen before. And so it's really important that we think about deep sea conservation when we talk about ocean conservation and get that largest habitat on Earth into the conversation. And like, what if something happens to the two types of bacteria
0: if it gets too acidified for that bacteria They fucking anglerfish?
1: Yeah, so being able to understand what they need to to survive and then how to protect these habitats is super important.
0: Do you like do other like uh epi and meso level um uh, animals like die and then ever float to the bottom and then do the deep sea ones eat them?
1: Yes. That's actually where most of the deep sea gets its food is from what we call marine snow, which sounds lovely, right? But it is actually the fecal pellets and, dying carcasses and bits coming from the surface waters. So most deep-sea habitats are relying on nutrients that fall from the surface. So if we're changing the production at the top, then we'll also change the amount of food that's ending up in these deep-sea habitats.
0: Who's the top of the food chain in the deep sea?
1: Depends on which habitat you're in. So, How many habitats and, are there again? Yeah, there are a lot. So we can think about like the open pelagic, these hydrothermal vents, which are these amazing geological features where you have black smoke coming out of the earth and a community that relies on chemosynthesis. So they actually make their own food from chemical energy in the earth. Totally different than our photosynthesis-based life up here. Um and we have like abyssal plains. There are even deep sea corals too. So we think a lot about shallow water corals, but there are deep sea corals that can live for thousands of years and they're beautiful um, as well as these trench habitats, sea mount habitats, deep sea canyons. So there's a lot of distinct habitats, each with their own set of organisms and adaptations in them. Are you looking up some deep sea coral? Yeah.
0: Ooh, yes. I've never even heard of that before.
1: They're, they're amazing. And so uh, if people want to watch some deep sea coral exploration, there are three programs that broadcast that ROV footage online. So NOAA Ocean Exploration. And that's
0: is where one. I am right now.
1: Are you good? Yeah, they have such beautiful video. Um, and then Nautilus Live through Ocean Exploration Trust also has a live video that you can watch, as does Schmidt Ocean Institute. So this is a great way to become a deep sea biologist right from your living room. You can tune in and watch and then they'll have scientists narrate along on the dives and some cases where you can even call in and ask questions or ask questions online.
0: This picture says a a red tree coral seen on a deep water exploration of Glacier Bay National Park Expedition Credit NOAA Fisheries. These look like clownfish or they're like orange and white fish by the corals. But is this, do you think it's really deep sea if the fish are that color?
1: It's a good question is like where do we put the line for deep sea it probably is deep sea but maybe at something like 300 meters or 900 feet rather than super super deep so there might still be a little bit of light
0: so is um so you wouldn't maybe see coral like in the Mariana, like the like all the way like thirty six thousand feet deep.
1: Not all the way thirty six thousand that we know of, but pretty deep. There is what's some the deepest? Down to,
0: they found I, so far. I
1: believe it's at about six thousand meters, so about twenty thousand feet. Some deep sea corals. So it is far down there. And the shallow water corals are relying on little symbionts to photosynthesize for some of their nutrients. But these deep sea corals are actually filter feeders, so they're picking up plankton and things from the water column to be able to eat
0: so i was kind of assuming that it would be coldest shit anywhere in the deep sea like is it colder in the arctic deep sea than it is in like the mariana trench deep sea or is it all just like cold as fuck because it's so de- deep down there
1: it's all pretty cold. So most of the deep sea is about four degrees Celsius or down to one degree Celsius. So it's about the temperature of your fridge. And then some of the Antarctic deep sea is, can actually even be about minus one Celsius. So it even gets below freezing because that salty water lets it get super cold. So it's pretty cold down there. Um, if you do go in a submarine, you are taking a sweater down because it does get cold over time.
0: Have you ever gotten to go in the deep sea,
1: like in one of those things? Yeah, so I dove in the Alvin submersible. So we were part of an expedition to the Puerto Rico trench and the Cayman Trough. And we were writing also a user manual about how to do research with this U.S. national submersible and um, verifying things like data collection and camera operations. So it was a great opportunity to get to go. Were
0: you scared?
1: Get a little bit of anticipatory anticipatory anxiety before, but once you're in the submarine, it's very calm um, and it is beautiful. So you actually get to see those bioluminescent lights as you go down and it's really incredible so that kind of feeling of awe and something bigger than yourself that you might get in a national park to me i also get in the deep sea and even looking at video of the deep ocean as well um what is there any like other things that you're super interested in exploring about
0: the deep sea like and what are like any of the projects that your lab are currently working on
1: yeah, we're working on some new species descriptions of some snailfish. So these live at abyssal depths, about 12,000 uh, to... 16,000 feet down, so pretty deep. So we're working on describing those as new species. We're also interested in how deep sea fishes are feeding. And we use techniques like CT scanning. So you might have CT scanning done at the hospital. We use it to get high resolution 3D images of skulls and the rest of the skeleton of fishes so that we can figure out how they're eating. And then I'm very interested in pressure adaptation. So continuing to look at how the proteins and the enzymes in these species are adapted to help them survive under those high pressures.
0: And so you guys just get like the dead bodies in those like traps or something and then you look at them under microscopes?
1: in some cases, microscope. And we can get so much information from any collection that we get, right? And we don't take that collection lightly. We wanna be able to get as much science as possible um, to ultimately help protect these species as well. So we know what's down there. Uh, And so the specimen itself will go into a museum And those specimens can serve scientific research for hundreds of years. So I've, for example, worked with specimens that were collected in the 1800s and we're still getting scientific information about them. We'll also take some samples for DNA as well as analyzing the tissues. Sometimes we look at what's in the stomach, so what it ate. Uh, Sometimes we'll take those otoliths' ear bones to figure out how long that fish lived. Uh, We're taking a lot of different samples for different teams to answer questions about those species.
0: I was just going to ask about like intersex traits in fishes, but it sounds like that hermaphroditic thing is so common. Like, it's like just like their gender is just like totally, or their biological sex is just like totally different than mammals. Right? Like, it's like.
1: there's a ton of diversity in biological sex and gender, including in mammals, and uh, even more so in fishes, though. So there's so much diversity within these groups. And if you are interested in reading more about that, there's a book called Evolution's Rainbow by Joan Riff Garden that talks about this incredible and beautiful diversity of sex and gender in the animal kingdom, um, and I think helps us be more inclusive in the way that we talk about reproductive biology. So Mackenzie, where are you
0: like from and like, what were you doing? You're just like minding your own business one day and you were like in high school and you're like, oh my God, I'm like going to be a fucking, cause like, I feel like all these hoes are like, I'm going to be a marine biologist. And then they don't like, how did you literally do it?
1: Yeah. So I was one of those kids, right? That's like, I'm going to be a marine biologist. And I guess I was stubborn enough to (laughs) stick with that plan. Um, I was very interested in orca whales, like what Dr. Giles works on, um, but then got interested in sharks. And then in college, I started working um, with a research team that studied the deep ocean with Dr. Paul Yancey at Whitman College. And one day he called me into his office and he said, do you get seasick? And I essentially said, it doesn't matter what the answer to that question is, whatever this is, I'm on board. And so I was able to go out on a research expedition that he couldn't attend. And so I got to go explore some of these deep sea habitats in deep sea trenches and then haven't looked back because it's been an incredible opportunity. So I'm very drawn by how little we know about these habitats, how much there is to explore, and also this fantastic opportunity to collaborate because it takes a lot of people to study these deep sea habitats.
0: How many times have you gone down?
1: I've only done a couple. Yeah, I've only done a couple of submarine dives. Mostly I'm working from the ship, but I've spent more than 200 days living and working at sea on different expeditions. Sometimes we're out there for a week. Sometimes it's 40 days. And it's nice to be able to have this really focused and collaborative work at sea. I really enjoy it.
0: Any tips for people who are like going on cruises that they've never been on? Like, do you have any like not getting sick tips?
1: Oh, so seasickness does pass. Um, I get sick a little bit sometimes. But usually if I eat a little bit, uh, and I'm, you know, staying outside for a while, it'll go away. What's more interesting to me is actually I get land sick when I come back. So I still feel like the world is moving. And it's so interesting that the body does that. But when I lie down at night, I'll feel like I'm on a ship still.
0: Mackenzie, can I tell you, the only cruise I've ever been on was the Kesha cruise in, like, 2019. And it was really weird because I was, like, in Tokyo and then I flew to Tampa. And I was like, has anyone ever flown from Tokyo to Tampa? Like, I was like, this is, like, such, like, a, a random flight. Term. Yeah. and then But then I got on this ship. And for, like, a week, and I was only on the ship for four days, but for, like, a week plus, like, I would be, like, making my coffee and I would just feel my body kind of lurch. Mm-hmm. And, like, it, I, I was like, that's really interesting. Um, So, and then, like, um, uh, any tips for people who are like, is it ever too late to, to get into science? Like tips for people who are like, maybe themselves interested in deep sea or have a loved one who's like, I want to be a marine biologist that they're getting down or like don't know a good community. Like, where should like, what are like the best places for marine biologists to try to like get to like educationally?
1: Yeah, so I think for deep sea biology, watching some of those videos, um, there are also internships through programs like NOAA Ocean Exploration, where you can get out on a ship and go research. Uh, But for anyone interested in science, just keep asking questions, right? Sometimes we filter ourselves or we think like, I don't know if that's a good question, but science is really about asking questions of the world around us and exploring those answers. So I think people are off to a good start by getting curious, like listening with this podcast. I'm also a big advocate of bringing in our expertise from different fields. So go to the writing classes, go to the math classes, because if we're able to look at all of these different um, knowledge that we can get from different fields, we can really ask better questions about science and do better science. So go find your team. (laughs) There's a lot of folks doing great work in the marine sciences.
0: Um, has there ever been like the wildest thing that's ever happened to you? Like while you were doing research, did you ever see something that was like a first time or like you guys hadn't seen that before? Like what's like the wildest thing that happened?
1: Yeah, I've been lucky to be on several of those moments and it's always like, this is the best thing to, to get to see. One was when we were studying the Mariana Trench um, with Schmidt Ocean Institute's ship, the Falkor and uh the, uh, engineering team had put down a camera that was actually designed to look at another piece of equipment. So this was just making sure that this tube that was going to collect sediment went down and worked correctly and something swims past the camera. And it turns out that it was this beautiful fish that is a snailfish that had never been seen before. And we knew right away that this was a different species. It's still never been collected to my knowledge. And to me, that's so beautiful that there are things out there for us still to discover. There's so much to learn and understand about some of these beautiful organisms that we share our planet with.
0: Any other stories like that?
1: Mm, several examples of them. Um, One that was fun was we uh, found what's called a super giant amphipod. So these are crustaceans. They're kind of like beach hoppers. And mostly in the ocean, they're quite small on the order of an inch long or even smaller, a quarter of an inch or eighth of an inch. But there are some species that get Big, and the name super giant is weird. Um, but it turns out there was already a giant amphipod, and then scientists found a bigger one, so it had to be the super giant amphipod. And uh, we pulled some up from depth, and uh, were very surprised to see them in the trap. They had been um, seen before, actually, in the stomach of a bird. Who knows how they got there? Maybe it floated up to the surface. But it was really exciting to get to see.
0: How big was that one? This.
1: They're. Uh, Quite large, so they're about twelve inches to Damn. eighteen inches long. They're pretty big. Yeah. They
0: are super giant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, what's next for you? What's next for your research? Are you like all up on TikTok? Are you more on Instagram? Are you a social girly? Like, where can people follow the doctor, darling?
1: Yeah. I have <laughs> I have a research website that people can check out, and then I'm kind of in transition on socials, so we'll see where I end up. Um. But I'm also excited about uh, teaching deep sea biology and training new students. So we do a lot of that work here um, working with really fantastic research teams.
0: Mackenzie, it wouldn't be an episode of Getting Curious if I didn't implore our guest to get on fucking TikTok at the end. Okay. <laughs> I just really think you could really just be like, I think you could like literally like um, I would follow the shit out of you on there and you could like, <laughs> you could use these videos and then do the green screen feature. You could be like, see that? That's a, this, a, uh, this is the meso. This is, uh ah, uh, I'm seeing it. Um, If you want a social media manager, I am not available, but I will consult with you anytime. Awesome. I would, <laughs> well, I am obsessed with you. Um, Mackenzie, thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. I learned so much much thank you
1: thank you so much for your great questions
0: uh-uh. you've been listening to getting curious with me jonathan van ness you can learn more about this week's guest and their area of expertise and the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on and honey there's more where that came from you can follow us on instagram at curious with we are doing the most over there and it is so much fun You can catch us here every Wednesday and also make sure to tune in every Monday for alternating episodes of Curious Now and Pretty Curious. Still can't get enough? Subscribe to Extra Curious on Apple Podcasts for commercial-free listening and our subscription-only show, Ask JBN, where we're talking sex, relationships, and so much more. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. Our engineer is Nathaniel McClure, Getting curious is produced by me, Chris McClure, Julia Melfi, and Allison Weiss, with production support from Julie Carillo, Ann Curry, and Chad Hall.